Truly Atrocious is made for mature audiences. The following program contains depictions of violent and disturbing content, which may be too intense for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. According to Hunting Serial Predators by Grover Maurice Godwin, a cognitive object killer is a theme assigned to classify a serial killer who exhibits certain characteristics. For this particular individual, they are organized, have a high self-awareness, has a personal attachment to their victim, and they're sadistic. Generally, they are white males around the age of 31 years old who are employed and they likely consume a lot of pornography and have sexual fetishes. Signature behaviors for this type of killer include disfiguring the body, dismemberment post-mortem, and scattering body parts. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Elliott Dietz argues that the killer's wish to inflict pain upon their victims is not necessarily sadistic, but rather it is so that the killer can have complete mastery over another person, to make the victim a helpless symbolic object of their will, and to do with the victim as they please. I'm Amber, and this is Truly Atrocious. The meter man knew he was in for a long day when he saw the flash of a naked man jumping from a second-story window. He almost chuckled as he saw the man recover from the fall immediately. Was it a lover's quarrel? No, it was more likely that he'd gotten caught with another man's wife. Yeah, that had to be it. But as the naked figure started running towards him, with a dog collar around his throat attached to a loose leash, abject terror was written on his face. The meter man knew that something was wrong. Christopher Bryson was trying his best to get some sleep. It had been a long day, the longest day of his life, in fact. But between the nurses coming in to check on him and the police barging in during the middle of the night to take yet another statement, it was all that Chris could do just to hold it together. He was mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausted. Every time he closed his eyes to try to escape it all, he could feel the lash of an electric shock and see Bob's face and his sick, satisfied grin as he roared in pain. Yeah, Chris wanted to sleep, but even more than that, he wanted to ensure that Bob Berdella never had the chance to do this to him or anyone else ever again. Bob Berdella was anxious to get home. He'd bounced around the shop all morning, checking the clock every few minutes just to see if the time was ticking by faster. It wasn't. Thoughts about Bryson plagued him. For the first time ever, Bob had let one of his captives convince him to tie his hands in front of him versus keeping his hands tied to the bedpost. Bryson had been obedient so far, and he seemed extremely submissive. Therefore, Bob had allowed it. It was all an experiment anyway, and he was truly eager to see how this ounce of comfort would affect Bryson's attitude going forward. His obsession over his captive soon wavered when a call came into the store from one of his neighbors. Apparently, there was police sitting outside of his house, and some of them were even going into the backyard. 
Immediately, Bob clutched his chest. He had a heart condition, and he took medication for it, and he knew that jumping to conclusions would do him no good, but he couldn't help the palpitations that thudded behind his ears. What happened? What had they found? Surely Bryson hadn't managed to loosen his gag and scream, or worse, escape. It was too much to bear thinking about. Bob had to go check things out, to see if Bryson had actually managed to get free. His logical mind told him that it was impossible, but this niggling feeling that he'd had all morning about leaving Bryson tied with his hands in front of him was starting to come back to haunt him. He closed up the shop early, just for lunch, he told himself, and got into his Toyota Tercel, fighting through the traffic of the thousands of college basketball fans that had descended onto their city thanks to the NCAA Final Four that was being hosted in Kemper Arena. As he pulled up to his residence at 4315 Charlotte Street at 11.30 a.m. that Saturday morning, Bob would have more to worry about than traffic. Bob's heart raced as he stared at two men, obvious police officers. They were sitting in a car outside of his home. Clearly, they were waiting. Were they waiting on him? No, this was all just a coincidence. He wouldn't let the paranoia get to him. He approached the two officers sitting in their car and asked them what was going on. They replied, oh, not much. It was so casual and so unassuming that Bob let relief flood him for just a moment before giving the police his name. After all, they had asked for it, and he didn't want to be rude. Bob Berdella, he replied. Their doors whipped open, and before Bob could even comprehend what was going on, they had their handcuffs on him, reciting him his Miranda rights. So who is Robert Berdella? And more importantly, what did he do? If you're like me and have never heard about this guy, then boy, are you in for a ride. After diving into this case, I was shocked that I'd never heard the name Robert Berdella before. I have a few theories about why that is, but first, let's get to know a little bit more about Bob. Not because we care. Honestly, this guy deserves the little recognition that he gets. Nevertheless, it's always interesting to see what makes the monster. Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. was born as the first of two sons on January 31, 1949, in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. His parents were Robert Berdella Sr. and Mary Louise Berdella. His father worked at the Ford Motor Company, which provided the family a stable, middle-class upbringing. Robert Sr. was a man of Italian descent and a devout Catholic at that. It was said that he was very severe in his punishments with his sons, particularly with Bob, the eldest child. He was known to beat his children with a leather strap when they stepped out of line or misbehaved, and verbal and emotional abuse were hand-in-hand with physical beatings. All the while, his mother remained a passive figure in the background, never interfering with Robert Sr.'s harsh punishments. I mean, it was the 1950s after all. Beatings for children and wives were about as common as receiving the daily newspaper. As a child, Berdella is intelligent, and he shows an interest in his academics and the arts. This isn't always a positive thing, especially living in the Midwest where many people, including Berdella's father, valued athleticism over intellect. It doesn't help that Berdella also had severe nearsightedness and a speech impediment, which resulted in him wearing thick glasses and talking with a slight lisp. From a young age, this ostracizes Berdella, and he doesn't go out and he doesn't have very many friends that he can talk to. He does begin to show an interest in other hobbies such as reading, coin collecting, stamp collecting, and talking to pen pals. He was starting to form relationships and garner a background on other cultures by speaking with people from Vietnam, France, Japan, Canada, to name a few. 
When he was seven years old, his parents would have another son named Daniel. Unlike Berdella, Daniel did have an aptitude for sports. This would be a point of contention for Berdella growing up, as his father would constantly compare him with his younger brother. So we're starting to get an image of Berdella already. He's a loner, with his closest friends being his pen pals and his books. He can't relate to his father at all, but that doesn't stop him from trying. Unfortunately, he never gets the chance to really solidify a bond with his father, because during the Christmas holiday in 1965, when Berdella was just 16 years old, Robert Sr. would have a fatal heart attack. He was only 39 years old at the time that he passed away. In response to his father dying, Berdella tries to turn to Catholicism. Whether that was to make sense of his father's death or to become closer to his father, it's unsure. Either way, this only pushed him to study other religions, which in turn made him become a bit jaded and cynical. Less than a year after his father passed away, Berdella's mother, Mary Louise, would marry another man. Around the same time, he's working part-time at a restaurant and he claimed that during this time, he was raped by an older man working there. He never reported the incident to police, which is not surprising. Even now in the 21st century, there's a stigma around reporting rape for both men and women, but especially men. Given that this was around 1965, you can imagine as a teenage boy, Berdella felt that this was an impossible situation. Already within the span of one year, Robert has gone through three traumatic events, which no doubt have an impact on his psyche. Particularly with his mother remarrying so soon after his father's passing, he felt that this was a betrayal on his mother's part. The rape, no doubt, played a massive role in the actions that Berdella takes later on in his life. Fast forward to 1967, Berdella graduates from high school and he moves from Ohio to Kansas City, where he enrolls in Kansas City Art Institute. By all intents and purposes, he was a great student early on, but by 1969, he was experimenting with drugs and would find himself arrested twice, once for selling to an undercover officer and another time for possession of drugs, marijuana and LSD to be specific. Soon after his arrest, he would go on to quit art college because, and this was according to Berdella's account, his tutors failed to understand his art projects, which often involved live animals. Just to give a background, in one of Berdella's art projects, he constructed a small maze and provided each participant a baby chicken to hold. At the end of the maze, he made the participants watch a short film that showed an explosion before the chicken, on the film that is, was shot to death. Berdella would enjoy seeing the participants' involuntary reaction to this jump scare, which often included them squeezing the chicken in fright. On another occasion, he brought a live duck to campus and chopped its head off before proceeding to dance around its corpse while chanting nonsense. He then took the duck home and cooked it for dinner. It goes without saying that this is a major red flag. Now, after his withdrawal from college, he starts working as a short-order cook, which he apparently has a knack for. He would grow to become quite a successful chef. In fact, he worked at several renowned restaurants and country clubs in Kansas City. He even helped to set up training classes for aspiring cooks at a local community college. This helped him not only to purchase a home in Kansas City, but it also helped to fund his hobby of collecting arts and antiquities, which would inevitably become a full-time job for Berdella. In 1981, Berdella would hang up his chef's apron and move into the life of a businessman by opening up his own shop called Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Berdella touted that he sold ethnological curiosities from the world's far corners. 
Basically, he just traded in primitive art, clothing, jewelry, and antiques. The shop was located inside the old Westport Flea Market, where other vendors would have booths. Soon after opening up his shop full-time, he realized that it wasn't as lucrative as he'd hoped it would be, and would have to come up with other means to make enough money to pay his debts and his bills. At this point, Berdella decides to turn his home into somewhat of a boarding house for extra income. Most of his renters were vulnerable young men, such as runaways, young gay men, drug addicts, alcoholics. Oftentimes, they couldn't even afford to pay Berdella. So in exchange for board, they would help him with things around the home that he'd otherwise pay someone else for, such as mowing the yard, fixing up things around the home, and helping work at a shop. Berdella claimed that he wanted to help these young men. He wanted them to get off of the street and become productive members of society, and he felt that by offering them board in a safe neighborhood and by helping them find jobs and become accountable for doing chores and paying for room and board, that he was bettering their life. The men had no reason not to believe him. After all, Berdella had helped to form and head the local neighborhood watch and by all accounts was an upstanding member of the community. By 1984, Berdella's home had pretty much just become a storage warehouse for oddities and antiques that he'd wanted for his shop. However, he just didn't have enough room in the flea market booth to store everything that he wanted to collect and trade. The house was a hoarding nightmare. We'll later learn from Detective Troy Cole, the lead investigator on Berdella's case, that it was one of the worst houses in terms of smell, clutter, and filthiness that he'd ever seen. Around this time as well, Berdella was starting to despise the young men who he'd once sought to help. Most of them weren't accepting his help, but instead they would only come around when they needed something, such as money, drugs, or a place to sleep off a bender or withdrawal. One such young man was 19-year-old Jerry Howe. He actually met Jerry through his father, Paul Howe. His father was a merchant at the flea market, and he had once had a booth located next to Berdella's for some time. When Jerry was in his early teens, around 14 or 15, he would tease Berdella about being openly gay. But as he grew older, Jerry confided in Berdella that he was hustling. In other words, he was prostituting himself to men for money. Berdella disapproved and would later go on to tell Paul Hal what his son was up to. At that point, Jerry was already 18, so his father couldn't stop him. Jerry was mad at Berdella for this and for a period of time avoided him. Eventually, he started hanging out with Berdella again and then they started to have sex. Berdella would even help get Jerry some dental work done as well as help him with buying a car and loaning him some money. In exchange for this, Jerry was supposed to pay him back and help Bob out around the house. Unfortunately, Jerry didn't live up to this arrangement. Of course, this angered Berdella. And that anger, on top of the rage that he already had inside of him from the other young men that he felt were using him, came to a head on July 5, 1984. On that day, Jerry had promised to go to Parkville, Missouri with Berdella to help him look at a car. The car in question was one Berdella had purchased for another young man named Freddie Kellogg. Berdella had repossessed the car from Kellogg because the young man hadn't paid him back. Anyway, back to Jerry. So once Berdella picks Jerry up, Jerry basically blows him off. He tells him that he wants to go hang out with his friends instead of going to Parkville with him. And before meeting up with his friends, he wants Berdella to get him some drugs. Berdella kept his cool, but on the inside, he was losing it. He was so angry about this turn of events, after everything that he'd done for Jerry, to have him casually back out and then ask him to take him to hang out with his friends and get him drugs first. Berdella just couldn't believe this, 
but he obliged anyway. He got Jerry some Valium, and he got him a tranquilizer, just enough to make him pass out. Once he was unconscious, Burdell injected Jerry with more drugs to ensure he had absolute control over him and restrained him to his bed. From here, Burdella would begin his decline into madness. During this time, Burdella was still trying to maintain a normal appearance, so he was still going to work, all the while he was heavily sedating Jerry and keeping him tied to his bed. Once he returned from work, he started to torture Jerry, from raping and violating him with foreign objects to striking him with a metal ruler and a rubber mallet. While Bordella was doing this, he was also keeping meticulous notes on what he was doing to Jerry. He would make a note every time he drugged Jerry, specifically keeping a record of how many cc's of a certain drug he was giving him. He also made a note every time he raped him, specifically notating the type of rape it was as well. The torture lasted for 28 hours. The following day after being captured, Jerry was dead. His death was the result of asphyxiation likely due to choking on his own vomit and not getting enough air. After he was dead, Burdella drug his body down to the basement from the third floor. He had an old antique pulley that he secured to a beam in the basement, and he hung Jerry's body from it upside down. Once he was hanging, he took photos of Jerry's dead body before draining all of its blood and then proceeding to dismember his corpse. Now remember, Burdella was considered a great chef, having worked for many prominent restaurants in the area, so he was very capable with a knife. He then wrapped the dismembered pieces of Jerry's body into plastic wrap and placed him into dog food bags that he would then wrap again, along with all of the equipment and tools he used in the dismemberment. Once he was done, he placed Jerry's body out to the trash on a Monday morning, all the while watching as the trash collected Jerry's remains to ensure that the body wasn't discovered. On July 8, 1984, Jerry's father, Paul, contacted the police to report his son missing. He told the police that Jerry was last seen with Robert Berdella. This, of course, resulted in Berdella being interviewed by the police. During his interview, he told the police that he had dropped Jerry off at a 7-Eleven, and the police believed him. I mean, they had no reason not to. Aside from some petty drug arrests when he was in college, he was by all accounts an upstanding member of the community. I mean, he helped form his neighborhood watch after all. Berdella thought that he'd finally gotten the police off of his trail. However, a previous renter of his named Todd Stoops would end up tipping off the police again. He told the police that Berdella would often offer and then inject men with drugs, usually at their request. At this point, the police put surveillance on Berdella, but no evidence was ever found tying Robert to Jerry's disappearance. That didn't stop people from believing that Berdella was involved, however. Jerry's father never gave up on the thought that Berdella was involved in Jerry's disappearance. He confronted Berdella about this, and he even went through his trash. Obviously a bit too late to find anything to tie him to Jerry. Nevertheless, Paul Howe was persistent, and he made it known to the police how he felt about Robert Berdella. Nine months after Jerry's death, another opportunity presents itself to Berdella. At this point, Berdella has all but gotten away with one murder, and the fact that the police are no longer looking at him for Jerry's disappearance was a sign for Berdella to continue. On April 10, 1985, a 20-year-old man named Robert Sheldon arrived at Berdella's home looking for a room after an argument with his girlfriend. Now, Sheldon was a known acquaintance of Berdella's. In fact, he'd rented from him before, and he was good about paying his rent. But at this point, Berdella was starting to have that feeling again. 
that same feeling that he had had with Jerry, where he wanted to take out all of his pent-up anger and aggression on someone, regardless of who it was. So upon inviting Sheldon into his home that evening, a plan already started formulating in Burdella's mind. Once Sheldon had passed out for that evening, Burdella injected him with drugs twice to try to render him unconscious. He wasn't successful. Sheldon was up and walking around just a few hours later, though he did complain of some stiffness in his muscles. A few days afterwards, on Friday, April the 12th, Burdella found Sheldon drunk and passed out on his couch and took this as an opportunity to strike. As you can imagine, Burdella has had nine months to think about what he would do if he had the opportunity to kill again, and with Robert Sheldon, it was clear that Burdella had been itching for another chance to try something new. Something that he may have tried on Jerry had he been given more time to plan. After rendering him unconscious, he bound Sheldon to his bed and injected drain cleaner into his eyes. From there, he also filled his ears with caulking material. Yes, caulking material that you would use in your bathtub or around your home. All of these things were a way for Burdella to cut off the victim's senses. No way to see, no way to hear, no way to know what was going on. After he felt that Sheldon was suitably unable to see or hear, he rapes him a number of times and he also uses hypodermic needles to stick underneath his fingernails to inflict pain. He then tightly wrapped piano wire around his wrist to cause permanent nerve damage so that he wouldn't be able to control his hand movements. In addition to all of that, Berdella starts to introduce the use of a 7700 volt transformer. Using alligator clips, which are clips that you see on the ends of jumper cables, he would attach the transformer to different parts of the body, including his genitals, and electrocute him. Sheldon was the only victim that Burdella had also tattooed, which is weird, but in this instance he tattoos the word hot on Sheldon's shoulder. Now, according to Burdella himself, this was just another way for him to dominate another person, to treat a human being like an object that he could control. Just like he had with Jerry, Burdella keeps very detailed notes and tons of pictures of the incident. However, this time he also includes himself in the photos. So unlike with Jerry, he takes his time with Sheldon and manages to keep him subdued in his home for three whole days. Now on April the 15th, Burdella found a man working on his roof at his home and in fear that he'd be discovered with Sheldon tied and tortured to his bed, he decided to kill the 20-year-old young man by suffocating him with a plastic bag. He then proceeded to dismember his body as he had with Jerry. This time, instead of taking him to the basement, he dismembers him in the bathtub. He then proceeds to place his body parts yet again in plastic wrap, then dog food bags wrapped in yet another layer of plastic wrap, and he leaves all of this out by the trash for pickup on a Monday morning. Again, he has that same routine where he sits by his window and he watches the trash being picked up just to ensure that no one picks up on the fact that there are body parts wrapped in his dog food bags. Also, for some unknown reason, he decides to keep Sheldon's head as a souvenir. So after dismembering him, he places the head in his freezer. After realizing that, you know, it's pretty unreasonable to keep a human head in your freezer, he decided to bury the head of Robert Sheldon in his backyard. A couple months later, on June 22, 1985, Burdella discovers a 20-year-old man by the name of Mark Wallace intoxicated in his shed. Mark was a young man who Burdella had briefly met through another acquaintance, and he'd mowed Burdella's lawn on occasion. 
He certainly wasn't someone who owed Berdella money or who had wronged him in the past, but Berdella viewed Mark as an opportunity, someone who wouldn't be easily connected with him and someone who may not be so easily missed by others. As he had with his previous two victims, Berdella invited Mark into his home, injected him with a cocktail of drugs to sedate him before binding him to his bed and raping him. We continue to see this pattern of escalation with Berdella and his victims, so you can imagine that Mark's torture is progressively worse than Jerry and Sheldon's. The evening after Mark's capture, Berdella returns home from work and finds that Mark is coherent and trying to free himself. Berdella drugged and restrained him again, continuing his torture. Mark would die, according to Berdella's journal, on June 23rd around 7 a.m., According to the book Rites of Burial by Tom Jackman and Detective Troy Cole, Berdella confirms that he dies of asphyxiation. As per Berdella's M.O., he then dismembers Mark's body and discards his body in the trash as he had with the previous victims. So at this point in Kansas City, within the span of a year, there are now three men missing, which puts the gay community on high alert. This is the late 80s, so the gay community in this area was small, and within that circle, Berdella was garnering a bad reputation. It was known that he was extremely aggressive with men that he was having sex with. To say he was forceful would be putting it lightly. He was also known to offer these men drugs, including offering to shoot them up with different drugs, which honestly is so ironic because if you know anything about Berdella, he constantly talks about his perception and how he wants people to view him as a positive person. He claims that his goal was to help these men, to help get them off the streets, and to help get them off of drugs. Yet, even before his first murder, he intentionally administers and offers drugs and alcohol to vulnerable young men. So it's clear to me that his intentions were never to help these young men. If anything, he wanted to make them more vulnerable so that he could do whatever he wanted to with them. Nevertheless, some men still trusted Berdella. Or in the case of James Ferris, they needed him. On September 26, 1985, James, who was a married man at the time, came to Berdella's house hoping to get money or drugs. At this point, there's a clear pattern with how Berdella handles his victims. He sedated and restrained James before proceeding to rape and torture him. He's still using the 7700 bolt transformer, as well as a rubber mallet, he also starts using hypodermic needles as a sort of acupuncture technique, but he's doing this to elicit pain in the back and genital area. With James, he also starts using ketamine, which is a tranquilizer that can cause horrible hallucinations when not used properly. In less than 24 hours, James would succumb to the torture and die. It's unsure exactly what he died from since there's no body to perform an autopsy on, but the way Berdella explains his death it can be assumed that he died of an overdose of medication or possibly the stress of the torture alone. From here, the usual dismemberment would occur, followed by disposing of the body in the trash on Monday morning. Just a note, it is truly shocking that no one found these body parts. I suppose the fact that he's draining them completely of blood helps, but my god, isn't there a smell or something? It's just mind-blowing. Anyway, a few days after his disappearance, James's wife Bonnie reported him missing to the police. Bonnie had dropped James off at a bus station. At that time, she was aware that he was addicted to drugs, but she was pregnant with his child, and she was hopeful that he would change. That said, Bonnie knew that James had burnt nearly every bridge that he'd had with most of his friends and relatives, 
and Robert Berdella was the only man that she knew of who would help him with money or drugs. She was confident that Berdella had something to do with James's disappearance. So this is the second time that two men have gone missing, with Berdella being the last one known to have seen them. Police again question Robert and put him under surveillance and attempt to amp up their investigation efforts. They try going undercover to buy drugs from him, anything to arrest him or have a reason to search his belongings, but they were unsuccessful. Unfortunately, the police never found any evidence to connect him with James Ferris, and because of this, they never had enough evidence to present to a judge to obtain a search warrant to search his home. Therefore, they removed their surveillance unit and crossed him off as a suspect in James's disappearance. At this point, Berdella slows down a bit. His last two victims were both killed in five months' time, and he'd been suspected of being involved with both Jerry and James before they were missing. We skip ahead here to June 17, 1986, when Berdella picks up 23-year-old Todd Stoops. If you'll recall earlier in this episode, I mentioned Todd. He had tipped off the police, stating that he'd thought Berdella was involved in Jerry's disappearance. Todd and his wife had previously lived in Berdella's house in exchange for sexual favors, and up to this point, Todd trusted Berdella since he'd not harmed him before. In fact, according to Casey Logan in an article for The Pitch KC, a judge by the name of Marsha Walsh appointed Berdella to be Stoops' drug counselor. Now, how Berdella's name came to be included on a list of court-approved drug counselors has never been verifiably reported, but it's notable to mention given the fact that we all know that Berdella was a predator to these men. Nevertheless, on that June day, Todd was desperately in need of drugs and wanted to borrow some money from Berdella, his drug counselor, to get a fix. This was the one victim that Berdella admitted to being very sexually attracted to, so the decision to capture him was made pretty quickly. We see the same pattern with the drugging and the restraining. This time, however, Berdella keeps Todd captive for two weeks. He does the same to Todd as he had with the others in terms of raping and the other physical torture. This time, however, he rubbed Drano into Todd's eyes to blind him, and he injected the Drano into his voice box to prevent him from screaming. Where Berdella got the idea to inject Drano into someone's voice box to prevent them from screaming is beyond me, but that's what he did. The clear pattern of escalation with each victim is astounding and really solidified, in my opinion, how depraved Robert Berdella was. So with Todd, he took and kept extensive photos of the torture he inflicted, likely because he kept him around for so much longer. Todd died on July 1, 1986 from septic shock due to his injuries. The injury I honestly can't even mention here because it's so sickening and horrible to think about because it was a rape injury, but you can read more about it specifically in the book Rites of Burial. Again, he dismembers and throws his body parts out with the trash. Berdella is just biding his time, trying to stay under the radar, and he doesn't take another victim until June 23, 1987. This time it's a man named Larry Pearson, who Berdella had met and befriended earlier that spring. Larry is arrested for indecent exposure, and he calls his new friend Robert and asks him to bond him out of jail. Berdella obliges, and in exchange, he asks Larry to come with him on a vacation back home to Ohio. Now, it's unclear as to why Berdella wants Larry to go with him, but to give my unsolicited opinion, it's because Berdella wants to show Larry off to his family and let them know that he's capable of finding a partner. Berdella liked to keep up appearances and color himself in a favorable light. That being said, during the visit, Berdella thought that Larry had said some rude things to his mother, 
such as telling her about a porn film that he'd been in and referring to Bradella's mother as mom. He thought this was too familiar for someone who had just met her. He'd also once made some derogatory comments about gay people that didn't sit right with Berdella either. Now, once they got back to Kansas City, Larry moved in with Berdella, and it was during that time that he decided he would kill Larry. He claimed that he thought that Larry would be someone that no one would miss. He wasn't a Kansas City native, after all, and folks in the area wouldn't notice if he was gone. So yet again, Berdella drugs and ties Larry up in his room for weeks. Six weeks, to be exact. At the beginning of the capture, he raped and tortured Larry, as he had with the others. However, Larry started to submit and listen to Berdella after a few weeks. Berdella had presumed that he'd finally created the perfect slave in Larry. It was, after all, the longest he'd ever kept one of his victims captive. Feeling comfortable at this point in Larry's submission to him, Berdella forces Larry to perform oral sex on him. Now, this wasn't the first time. They'd done this multiple times before. However, during this occasion on August 5th, 1987, Larry bites Berdella so hard he nearly severed his penis. At this point, Berdella injected Larry with an animal tranquilizer and then beat him with a tree limb to the point of unconsciousness. Obviously, afterwards, Berdella had to go to the hospital, and at the hospital, the doctors told them that he was going to need surgery to repair the damage meaning that he was going to have to stay admitted into the hospital for a few days for observation and recovery. Berdella knew that he couldn't just leave Larry by himself, so he told the hospital staff that he needed to get home to feed his dogs. He took a taxi home, and then he suffocated Larry with a trash bag. After ensuring he was dead, he got back into the waiting taxi and went to the hospital for his surgery. It's also important to note that Berdella believes that Larry bit him not because he wanted to escape, but because he was jealous that Berdella was looking at images of other men while they were engaging in sexual activity. As I'm sure you've already guessed, after he returned from the hospital, he dismembered Larry, and then this time he does decapitate and save his head, the same as he did with Robert Sheldon. Here, he proceeds to dig up Sheldon's head that he'd kept buried in the backyard. It was the only victim's head that he'd kept up to this point, and he replaced his head with Larry's head. He then took Sheldon's head, which was actually just a skull at this point, given that it had been years since his murder, and he removed the teeth from the skull. He placed the teeth in two separate envelopes, and then he placed the teeth and the skull into a closet in his home. At this point, I know what you're all thinking. When will this end? You're in luck, because we finally reached this sicko's last victim. So here we are, March 29, 1988. Berdella picks up 22-year-old Christopher Bryson in an area that male prostitutes generally frequent. Bryson is married, and he has a baby on the way, but he wants to let loose and he wants to get high at least one more time. So that night, he saw a man that he'd never met before, and his name was Bob. He looked unassuming enough, and when Bob asked Bryson if he wanted to party, Bryson agreed, and he got into the car with him. Now this Bob character is obviously Berdella. At this point, Berdella is just glad to have obtained another victim that he didn't know. Again, it's less of a chance that he'd be linked to Bryson once he disappeared. Once they got to Berdella's house, they had some beers. Bryson claimed that Berdella suggested they go upstairs to watch TV because he had a dog that had just had puppies and the dog was being aggressive. Now, it's unsure if this was the case or if Bryson was going upstairs to perform a sexual favor. Either way, on his way up the stairs, Berdella hit Bryson from behind, knocking him unconscious. 
So we get the usual song and dance from Berdella. Bryson's restrained to the bed. He's drugged. He continues to inflict his usual punishments, such as rape, electrocution, physical beatings. However, this time, instead of injecting anything into his eyes like he had his previous victims, Berdella uses a cotton swab, and he tries to swab bleach into Bryson's eyes in order to blind him. Bryson is held captive until April the 2nd. By being obedient, Bryson was able to convince Berdella not to tie him to the bedpost, but instead to keep his hands in front of him so that he could be more comfortable. This worked, and Bryson was able to free his hands after he heard Berdella leaving for work. He was able to find some matches and burn through the bindings on his feet that were connected to the bedposts of the bed. Bryson was unable to remove the dog collar and the leash that Berdella had attached to him, but at this point he didn't care. And by some dumb luck, Berdella was just confident enough in his restraints that he left the windows unlocked. Bryson knew that it was his only chance, so he jumped from a second-story window to escape the horror house that he'd been confined to. He did end up breaking his foot, but no doubt in the end it was worth it. Also to note, he was not blind from the cotton swabs, but I'm sure it burned like hell. Now, soon after the jump, he meets up with a meter reader on the street, and they end up going to one of Berdella's neighbors to call the police. Upon interviewing Bryson, the police actually were unsure of whether he was telling the truth. In fact, Detective Troy Cole thought that Bryson was embellishing and that it was a lover's quarrel between him and Berdella. After taking a statement and seeing the condition he was in, they did thankfully take Bryson seriously and they arrested Berdella for kidnapping and sodomy. After his arrest, Berdella refused to sign a consent to search his home. However, given what Bryson had endured, the police were able to obtain a search warrant, finally, and search his home the same day of his arrest. As I mentioned a bit earlier, Detective Cole stated that the house was a mess. Berdella was using it to store a ton of things for his shop, and on top of all of that, he had dogs, and the dogs had feces scattered everywhere, and then there was just general untidiness. They did, however, find a trove of damning evidence, starting with two to three hundred photos of different men, many of which were victims, and one of which showed Jerry Howe hanging upside down in Berdella's basement. The cops immediately suspected that the man in this photo was dead just by his coloring. They'd also found those torture logs that Berdella had taken. Though they would need to be deciphered, it was clear after analyzing the notes that Berdella inflicted horrendous acts upon these men. Upon further searching, they also found a skull in Berdella's closet. While we all know this to be the skull of Robert Sheldon, it would take the police another month to confirm whose skull it was. Because of the presence of the skull and all the other damning evidence in the home, they were able to obtain a backhoe and dig up the backyard. The police were convinced that they'd found a graveyard in the yard, but they only uncovered one other skull, and that was the skull that belonged to Larry Pearson. During this time, they were also able to keep Berdella locked up without bond on the kidnapping and the sodomy charges. It would, however, take months to charge him with murder. The police were unable to locate any other bodies. As we know, all of the bodies had been disposed of in the trash, and with only the two skulls and some teeth, their cases just were largely circumstantial. They also had trouble with Chris Bryson being their key witness. As you can imagine, he was pretty traumatized from his ordeal with Berdella. He kept falling back into his old vices of drugs and alcohol and would constantly disappear for long periods of time. 
the police just couldn't count on Bryson's testimony for their case against Berdella. At the end of the day, they could only charge Berdella with the murders of Larry Pearson and Robert Sheldon because those were the only actual human remains that they had. They first started with Pearson because they had more evidence to connect him with Berdella. Along with his skull, they were able to find a chainsaw in the home, and that chainsaw had blood skin and pubic hair in it, all matching to Larry's DNA. The grand jury would come to indict Berdella for first-degree murder of Pearson. At most, the state could press for the death penalty, or at the very least, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Fearing the death penalty, Berdella shocked everyone on the day of the murder indictment, especially the prosecution, when he immediately pled guilty upon hearing the charge. He thought that pleading guilty would ensure that he wasn't put to death, but the prosecution disagreed, and it was still their goal to get the death penalty. Inevitably, they would come to a plea agreement in which Berdella confessed to all of his murders, in which he claimed there were six, in exchange for life in prison without parole, removing the possibility of the death penalty altogether. While many of the families were upset about this, it was actually probably for the best, given that there weren't any bodies for the four other victims, so this way, those families would know what happened to their children. And let's be honest, Berdella is a cowardly type of guy. The death penalty scared him, well, nearly to death, so he was willing to do whatever he could in order to avoid it. The information regarding all of the murders and Bryson's attack were detailed in Berdella's torture notes that he kept, and corroborated with more details during his confession, which lasted a span of three days in December of 1988. During his confession, he was very matter-of-fact, and he showed no remorse in discussing the heinous acts that he committed on these men. In fact, Detective Cole stated that he thought Berdella got a thrill out of retelling the story, like he was proud of what he'd done. In the end, Robert Berdella would indeed avoid the death penalty. However, death wouldn't avoid him. On October 8, 1992, after complaining about chest pains, Berdella would suffer a fatal heart attack and die. He'd only been incarcerated for less than four years. How can a seemingly normal and unassuming person like Robert Berdella resort to such atrocious acts of violence? That's always the question with these types of individuals. Some psychologists think that it stems from abuse that Berdella suffered at the hand of his father when he was a child, whereas other psychologists, such as Dr. Helen Morrison, presumed that it was a sick curiosity and the desire to experiment on human subjects that pushed those like John Wayne Gacy, Ed Gein, H.H. Holmes, and even Robert Berdella to commit these types of crimes. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell seems to agree with this notion. To him, it seems clear that Berdella wanted to see how much pain and torture the human body could withstand before shutting itself down. After hearing about his crimes and being compared to the likes of some of the most notorious killers such as Gacy, Holmes, and even Dahmer, it seems like Berdella is one of the most vile serial killers of our time. So that begs the question, why haven't many people heard about him? Is it because he was an openly gay serial killer, or because he preyed on some of the most vulnerable people, being young men who were on drugs or young men doing sex work? Or was it because his deeds were uncovered on Easter weekend of 1988, smack in the middle of the NCAA Final Four tournament? Ben Mead is a Kansas City native who sought to make a documentary about Berdella and how his murders impacted the city. 
If you're interested in watching that, it's called Bizarre Bizarre. In regards to why we likely don't hear much about Burdell and his victims, this is what Ben had to say. We've got better things to deal with. If you're gay, if you're black, if you're a prostitute, if you're a dope dealer, a drug user, you're down on the pecking order of human life value. And I don't think that's exclusive to Kansas City. I think that's everywhere. But I think that had a lot to do with this. Everyone makes mistakes, especially young people. All of Berdella's victims were in their late teens or early 20s, but at the end of the day, they were all human beings. People who had a life ahead of them if Berdella hadn't snuffed them out so early. We see this by looking at Christopher Bryson, Berdella's seventh victim and the only victim who managed to survive. Bryson was able to leave Kansas City and change his name, other than that, not much is known about him, and that's probably for the best. Having endured the type of trauma that he went through, at the very least, he deserves his privacy. Berdella, on the other hand, well, he's one serial killer that I wouldn't mind having some notoriety. He didn't want anyone to know about the horrific deeds that he'd committed. In fact, it bothered him that people thought poorly of him, that people referred to him as a monster. But that's exactly what he was. The only instance in my research of this case that I found Berdella becoming emotional was from an interaction that he had during his incarceration with a reverend named Roger Coleman. Upon meeting the reverend, his eyes watered and he trembled. Coleman recalled Berdella saying that he wasn't a monster, but instead he was a neighbor who had done some monstrous things. Robert Berdella may have been intellectually above average, but he was out of touch with reality and he died in obscurity a fitting end to a gross human being. So this week was a doozy, but I really appreciate everyone who tuned in to listen. As always, if you'd like to support this podcast, please like and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, follow our social media pages at Instagram, Truly Atrocious Pod, TikTok, Truly Atrocious, Twitter at Truly Atrocious, and be sure to subscribe and follow for the latest episode drop. Thank you guys again. See you soon.